Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another edition of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA podcast. I am Robert Winfrey, your weekly host for this particular show, thanking you start this time instead of at the end for tuning in. Uh, I'm going to get this out of the way because I always forget, and then I would feel like an idiot because I do it at the end and I know you skip it. <laughs> uh, we appreciate all your support, so likes, comments, subscriptions, shares, whatever your podcast platform of choice Give us a review if that's applicable. If it's straight up binary, give us a thumbs up. I think we deserve a thumbs up rather than a thumbs down, but maybe I'm overly pissed. And share us around. We are still trying to grow this, uh, so please, thank you very much. Getting that out of the way. On the agenda for this evening, UFC 252 was last night, and that was certainly an event. We'll be breaking down action from that card. The UFC does have an event coming up. It's a real one-fight card, but we'll talk about it because that's what we do here. And, of course, news of the week, such as it is. Um, not a lot this week, but I imagine this coming week's going to be fairly loaded as we've just had a major pay-per-view. So we'll see how that plays out. And, yeah, just news. You guys know the basic format by now. All right, joining me this week, I plucked him from obscurity. He is desperate to... Forget the woes of living on the East Coast at the moment. Uh, your friend and mine, the pugilistic pontiff, Pat Mullen. How are you doing, Pat? It's been a while. It has been a while. Thank you for the welcome back. Uh, awesome to be on the show again. Looking forward to a lot of things to talk about tonight, uh, mostly of the fighting variety. We will try to limit ourselves going <laughs> to that topic. All right, let's jump into UFC 252. Uh Kind of a one, I think I said last week when previewing it, when the fight card looked differently, that it was a pretty solid pay-per-view. Uh, you had a very relevant main event. You had some stuff uh, below it to kind of draw in value. You had, you know, Sean O'Malley and Marlon Vera was potentially a really good fight. JDS and Rosenstrick wasn't bad. You know, a good little mid-card heavyweight fight to try and, you know, keep things going. Then we lost some fights, some things got shifted around, and we wound up with what we wound up with. Uh, the main event, which is kind of not just the bulk of this card, but what we're going to spend a fair bit of time on. For the heavyweight title, the trilogy ends. Stipe Miocic defeats Daniel Cormier via unanimous decision, 49-46 twice and 48-47. Full disclosure, doing this live, I was 5-0 to for Stipe. I don't think that's accurate. I've said before that, you know, the way I score fights when doing coverage is profoundly flawed i'm honestly surprised i'm not more wrong more often uh the first round i think at a bare minimum probably should have gone to cormier uh the other round that maybe went his way was the fourth i again i disagree but i can see the argument uh other than that no real controversy over the fit over the uh outcome here uh there's i don't find a compelling argument for cormier winning this fight to be quite honest. Um, we're going to set aside the eye poke because there were eye pokes, but there was a really bad one in the third. And I want to talk about that separately to the rest of the fight. Pat, this was built up as, you know, again, the big trilogy fight, the most important, the most prestigious heavyweight fight in UFC history. However, whatever hyperbole people wanted to throw at it. I'm not sure I could disagree with too much of that, but Speaking just about the times these two men have fought, the first one ended in the first and was a little bit too fast to be all that entertaining. I mean, I'm not saying you can't have an entertaining fight that ends in the first round, but they're kind of rare. 
The second fight I rewatched in preparation for this was sloppy. Very high-paced, but sloppy. I think this was the best fight these two men have had. Both men got to display technique. They got to display strategy. It was, again, I think technically the best fight these two have had. I really enjoyed this fight, which is rare for me in heavyweights. Yeah, I agree. I think each guy had moments in this fight uh, of varied success, but each guy had moments. There were momentum shifts. I think the action pretty much held up with every round. And, you know, especially in comparison to their first two outings, like you said, the first one, it was brief. We didn't get a good encompassment of what both guys can do other than Cormier throwing a perfectly timed right hand in that clinch to the blind side and catching Stipe and putting him out. And the second fight, which it just seemed like Cormier was ill-prepared for long-term, and Stipe just was in better, worse shape. I I could put it that way, I guess. (laughs) for that fight and how it went down because it was an ugly kind of fight uh this one i think both guys were in shape as much as they could be with covid and everything going on i think they came in in the best possible shape for both of them lightest Uh, sipe's ever been i think he was 233 if memory serves yeah he really looked very lean uh very very it, it seemed like his cardio was the primary issue for him in this what he wanted to train for. And again, very, very lean light on his feet for most of the fight. Uh, so, so I definitely think he put work in to try to knock some, some weight off and try to last longer, which paid off because he went through all five rounds and, and, you know, I think most people would agree he finished in much cleaner shape in terms of the end of the fight. And yeah, we're going to talk about the eye poke. I don't think the eye poke dictated the entire fight. I think the fight had largely changed at that point and was going to keep going in that direction. I'm not saying the eye poke didn't affect anything. I don't think it changed the narrative of the fighter who was going to win it. Um, it happened. Both guys got poked at certain points. Um, you know, we found out today that the the diagnosis for Daniel Cormier is a, a torn uh, cornea, which does not generally require surgery. It's also – I saw this apparent, – apparently the cornea is one of the more faster healing parts of the eye, so – Yeah, I've had a scratched cornea, not a, not a torn one, and fortunately, like, it just takes a little bit of time, and you're fine after a little while. Um, but, but again, DC had moments in this fight. He was able to land some combinations and push Stipe back. I think Stipe didn't take DC's punching power for granted the way he did the first time, where he just kind of allowed him to wade in and felt like he could take it. Uh, and, and I think there were good moments for each guy in terms of what they do while standing up. The biggest thing, obviously, was that Cormier wasn't able to employ his wrestling like he would have liked to. And part of that, I think, is that Daniel's 41 years old. Yeah. At a certain point, your body doesn't do what you want it to do the way you want it to do it. And he's been through a, a lot physically over his 41 years. And I think part of it's been visible in his last couple years fighting in that when I saw Daniel come up, like I was actually very impressed with a a wrestler who was able to utilize his shoulders and head rolling very effectively to avoid taking clean strikes. That's gotten less and less over the past couple of years. And I mean, obviously in fights where you get knocked out, it's going to show more, but even in fights, he didn't get knocked out that he won like his fight with Gustafsson and a few others. He was hit pretty clearly and cleanly hurt and had to come back and rally 
at a certain point, if you take too much of that, plus the trauma he put his body through just through his wrestling career, where his kidneys effectively shut down on him at one point, you know, to be 41 and still a competitive championship caliber athlete's impressive. But at a certain point, the bottom is going to drop out and you're not going to be able to do things that you used to be able to do. And I think that that's kind of a little bit of what we saw, not to try to minimize, minimize what Stipe did well, but 41, it's hard to be able to pull the trigger before somebody pulls it on you. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I really like Stipe's, some of Stipe's adjustments here. He adjusted the angle he trended to come in on Cormier on for this fight because Cormier didn't do as much reaching with the old, uh, you know, the old mummy guard, as it's kind of derisively called, you know, that uh, stance where your hands are all the way extended. It was originally coined by Muhammad Ali derisively talking about uh, George Foreman before their fight because Foreman used it, too. Foreman was just a very large man to begin with, so arms out. He wasn't as worried about the body shots that could accumulate off of that the same way that you do if you have to worry about kicking. And or just being, you know, a 5'10 or whatever Daniel Cormier is heavyweight. And uh, so Miocic adjusted a little bit to be able to throw straighter punches. And even the times that Cormier did kind of reach out and try to hand fight, the angle that Miocic took allowed him to slip inside of that instead of having to loop around it, which is the entire point of the mummy guard. You disrupt the straight punching lanes. By adjusting where he was relative to Cormier, he kind of negated some of that, but he wasn't able to get to the body as much. He started off with some body work in the first and then just kind of got away from it as the fight went on. Um, I think one of the big things to me that I took away from this that I probably should have keyed into sooner, going back to some of Cormier's older fights, um, while Cormier is an absolutely superb wrestler, his wrestling, um, he requires space. He's not the same wrestler against the fence that he is in open space. Mm. Um, especially if he's the one on the fence. Uh, that's where John did a lot of work against him, especially in their first fight. He kind of pinned him there and just for stretches and went, all right, I've got one of your arms. You're not going anywhere and abused him. Now, some of that at the time we might've just chalked up to John Jones being John Jones, but, uh, Stipe was able to kind of do similar things to him here. I mean, guys who were clearly not on his level wrestling wise, like rumble, uh, even rumble was able to pin him there for a bit before he kind of reversed position. But it, it's, I don't know why I didn't key into it sooner, but Cormier against the fence, not the same wrestler that he is in open space. No, he, he works well off of the open space, especially in those instances where he sees an opponent with a solid planted lead foot. And he just goes in aggressively, hooks above the knee, and goes for that high crotch single. And that, that's usually his best takedown. I mean, we saw him basically toss and turn Josh Barnett in the air doing that, in, you know, center octagon. Um, yeah, that he, was easily the most – one of the most impressive physical feats of strength I've seen because Josh Barnett was 240 and change for that fight. Josh Barnett's a big guy. I mean – a lot of people in the UFC saw him do it to Dan Henderson, which was LOL Dan Henderson at 40-some-odd. Or when he did it to Gustafson. Gustafson's a big guy, but Barnett is a big guy. <laughs> yeah, uh, Josh is just a, a very big-boned individual who's very broad, you know, and he, he, 
he scooped him and tossed him. And again, but like we're talking about, okay, against Gustafsson, where did that shot come from where he was able to do it? He had open space. Again, where he has that freedom of range to be able to go off a different angle or attack and penetrate a certain way without any kind of risk. He's not comfortable when you put him backwards against the cage. He's not comfortable when you make him move backwards for the most part anyway. He needs open air to be able to angle off and move laterally or forward. He cannot move backward. It's not something he's comfortable doing. It's not something he realistically should do anyway, but ends up getting caught in that space kind of from time to time based on who he's fighting against. And that just so happened to him last night a couple times again. But that was orchestrated on purpose by Stipe because, again, you have to do that in order to stop him from bringing his A game, which is those high crotch open shot takedowns, which he really not only did he not really get, he didn't really have the opportunity to attempt very many of them. No, one of the things that surprised me a little bit in this fight, uh, if you look at the first two fights, because Cormier's, again, that single leg threat is so very legitimate, he can fake that and then clobber you with a right. And in their second fight, I don't think he ever caught Stipe with it flush, but he came real close a couple of times. It's a really nice setup he has. And the problem here is that he never actually established the takedown threat. I mean, even if you don't get it, to even threaten it, to just get your mind thinking about it. Uh, I was a little surprised by that. Uh, he did a lot of backing up. And again, some of that was Stipe picking up on you know Cormier not being good when backing up. He did a lot of turning, which is a bad – I mean, some, the number of his habits that he kind of fixed leading into this fight were somewhat impressive. He didn't reach as much as he normally does, which is a, both a habit and a choice. He didn't do that. He was able to kind of curtail that. He didn't lean as much. You know, Normally when he gets hit in the body, he starts leaning. Uh, he didn't lean. There's a few of his habits that he was able to address – but anytime he had to kind of reposition, he did the old half turn and look to escape. And that's a bad thing to do against somebody this much bigger than you. It just it leaves you vulnerable. And that's kind of what led to the near finish in the third round. Uh, I've seen some people mention that, you know, maybe Stipe could have got a finish there, Pat. I think that's being a little bit overly crit- as a hypercritical person myself. I think that's a little hypercritical of Stipe. Not only were they on short time, if you look at where Cormier landed, his back was to the fence. Stipe got into full mount, but he's seated, and Cormier immediately you know, body locks and hugs the chest. There's not really an angle there for much you can land offensively apart from what Stipe did. And you land punches to then try and you know open up a cross face to break them down, to push them away from the fence. And I just don't think there was enough time to realistically have gotten a finish in that particular scenario. But I don't know. Do you feel differently? Maybe you saw something I didn't. No, I don't, I don't, I don't think a finish was in the cards from a realistic standpoint. Then there was, you know, there was punishment being taken. He was landing good shots. I didn't see it get to the point where, you know, there was definitely a, a part where, oh, if he steps on the gas, he'll put Cormier out of there. Uh, you know, how many, how many times, uh, you know, how many times have we seen Daniel Cormier really put in that position where you're uh, on the verge of finishing him? That doesn't happen very often. It's really only the elite level guys. And how many times has he been finished to this point? 
Well, only by Stipe. And John. He's going to know. Yeah, and we'll get there. Only by Stipe, who's going to know when he has him probably better than anyone else does because he's done it before. And by John Jones. Who's maybe the absolute best we've ever seen. Yeah, so you're talking about a a, a truly elite-level guy who doesn't get finished very often. So kind of it's not fair criticism to get on Stipe for not doing that. Uh, And again, let's let's take things as they are. Stipe got thumbed in the eye, too, or well, not thumbed, but, you know, he took he took a finger into the eye at some point. So maybe his vision wasn't all the way 100 percent there and he didn't feel comfortable trying to open up defensively and give Cormier an out where he could potentially come back and counter with something hard enough to hurt him and take him out. Because that's a point we saw proven in the first fight, that Cormier is capable of doing that. And I'm sure that was on Miocic's mind. I agree. Okay, so we talked about it there. Let's talk about the eye poke. Now, again, Stipe got poked in, I think, the first or the second. Both, all three of the fights between these two guys have been marred by eye pokes. I know everybody likes to get on John for for his eye pokes, and to be fair... It happens a fair bit in his fights because of how he chooses to fight. I don't know why we always forget that Cormier – look, to be abundantly clear, I know there's a bunch of people out there who were like gloating with some kind of malicious karmic glee about Cormier getting poked like he did. Y'all are jackasses. Okay, don't be that guy. I'm just saying let's not pretend that Cormier is a choir boy about following all the rules. In this case, yeah, he – Again, in the third round, he gets poked pretty badly. Uh, And the referee didn't see it. Uh, And look, that sucks. Uh, The referee for this was uh, Mark Goddard, who is a very good ref. Uh, I know he's it's kind of fashionable at the moment to, you know, discuss the high-profile failings of various officials rather than the hundreds of times they get it right. Mark Goddard's a very good referee. Seeing eye pokes in real time is an incredibly difficult thing to do. Most refs actually wind up going on on how both of the fighters react rather than I saw the eye poke. Uh, It's just a hard thing to do. And th- again, this was a bad one. Cormier's left eye was completely messed up. I mean, he said to his corner between rounds, I can't see out of my left eye. Why the fight wasn't stopped by the regulators who are in the corner is beyond me. I mean, what purpose do you serve at that point? If you're not going to stop the fight when a fighter literally says, I'm blind in one eye. But uh, hey, collect your paycheck, state employee. Good for you. Uh, I don't think it, I'm not going to say I don't think it affected the fight because you can't see out of one eye. Yeah, that's going to affect things. I don't think that if the eye poke didn't happen, Cormier would have won. Like, I don't think it altered the outcome. And I, I don't know what the argument is here. Again, I've said this before. I don't think there's an argument for Cormier winning this fight. If we're talking about what happened here, I think there's only two arguments you present. One is that you think the fight should have been stopped because Cormier said he couldn't see out of his left eye, and fair enough. At which point, we have a no contest. Uh, we don't even get a technical decision at that point because you need to, we would need to get into the fourth. 
uh, before that would become a thing. And uh, Stipe still would have won. Because on all judges' scores, he was up 2-1 to one after the third. And depending on where you might have stopped it in the fourth, uh, two of the judges gave him the fourth. So again, we're still talking about a Miocic win on the scorecards. If you want to argue that a point should have been deducted given the severity of the foul, whether or not it was intentional, I'm sympathetic to that. I think there should be more point deductions for eye pokes. It's a problem we have in the sport. We'd like fighters not to be blind. I mean, I don't know. I would. Be at, nice. w- at which point we're still dealing with a Miocic win because then you have – so take one point off of his score – one judge then has it a draw. The other two have it for Stipe still. Like, that doesn't change the outcome. But, it, again, it was a bad eye poke. I, we're very glad that we have the information we have now that Cormier, it doesn't seem to be permanently vision-altering at the moment. And I'm very grateful for that. I don't wish ill on Daniel Cormier. But so anything you want to say about the foul then, Pat, and then I we I want to touch, talk a little bit, I suppose, about Cormier's legacy, because this was apparently his last fight. We'll see whether or not that holds. But at 41, with his career behind him the way it's been, I tend to think it is. Um, It was a good fight. I think both guys did the best they could with what they had. And I, I, I think each of them are just enough past their fighting primes that it was fun to see it go down one more time. And I I would agree. I think this was the best fight of their three fight series. Uh, I think both guys, again, got to show certain things they do well, and they treated us to an excellent night of action. And yeah, apparently this was the one that win, lose or draw. Daniel Cormier said was going to be his last. I have a theory about that. Actually, I think, and okay, before we get into Cormier's legacy, let's talk a little bit about what, we might have going out coming out of this fight at heavyweight. There was some noise being made in the uh, in the media by uh, you know Dana White and other UFC personnel and whatnot that after this fight was going to be Miocic and Ganu too. I don't really have an objection to that fight being made. I think at this point in Ganu is pretty clearly the next man up, even though he got beat comprehensively in their first fight. He's won the every fight since then. The man earned another crack at it. I'm fine with that. But kind of looming in the background of all the discussions around what might happen after this fight uh, was what a certain light heavyweight champion wants to do, that being John Jones. John's move to heavyweight at this point has been speculated about so often it's rote. But he said after now he said after the fact after this fight he wants to fight Stipe for that particular title. I will say this: if John is serious about it, make the fight. That is an interesting fight to me. If John is blowing smoke, please stop wasting everyone's time. Uh. I've long been very critical of the heavyweight division. I joked a little bit uh, that I hope they shut down heavyweight after this fight because the, the <laughs> division is losing. The division's losing half of its good fighters well, when Cormier retires. Well, and, and you know, you, you bring that up, but I, I you know, I, I thought about it after you said it too. 
I was like, I wonder about the heavyweight division. I want to see how old everybody is because I think what threw a lot of people is they don't realize that Steve Miocic is 37 years old. Yeah, he's not um, a young man. Yeah, and he's by a couple of years past what one would consider someone's fighting prime. So uh, I to, it's, again, it's a little bit different at heavyweight, but yeah, 37 is a little bit up there even for heavyweights. Yeah, so I decided to look at the uh, ages of you know our top ranked uh, UFC heavyweights. <laughs> There is, uh, from numbers, and we'll count Stipe as champion, right? So we'll count him. We'll count, you know, and then one and down on the line. Do you know how many out of the top, we'll say, uh, seven guys are under 30 years old? Uh, let me, I don't know what the rankings are at the moment. Give me just a second. I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you. So there's. Stipe is our champion. Number one, Daniel on, Cormier. I've, I've got I've got him here. Hang on just a second. Okay. Uh, so we have Cormier, we have Stipe, Cormier, and Ganu, Blades, Lewis, Dos Santos, Rosenstrike, Overeem. Right. For our tops for champion and seven. Yes. Um, maybe one of them. You oh, wait, would be you, right. Hang on, hang on. You said under thirty, right? You yes, you would be right. I think Blades maybe. Everyone else everyone else I like know is over 40 is over 30. Yes, Curtis Blades is 29. Everyone else is 33 or under or excuse me, over. Yeah, Lewis is closer to 40 than 30. JDS is closer to 40 in terms of damage if nothing else. Yeah, Rosenstruck is turning 33 and Ganu's turning 34. Uh who who else are we talking about? Derek Lewis is 35. So yeah, none of these guys is, are exactly. Lewis is younger than I thought he was, actually. <laughs> yeah, and of course I didn't want to go into Olenek or anybody else outside of there. And Alistair, even if he's not 40, has been fighting longer than pretty much all these guys. So there's a there's a physical element involved there. Yeah, it's an old division. It really is. I. Uh... So yeah, it, my point being, if John makes that move. I am more interested – selfishly, I am more interested in John versus Stipe than I am in Stipe and Ganu too. Your individual out there, mileage may vary. You might go, no, no, I, I, Francis is this you know, destroyer of men. She kind of is. Fair enough. <laughs> and I want to see him you know, fight for the belt again. I'm, I'm not saying that's a bad fight. I, part of the reason I'm so hesitant about that fight is while Ganu has just kind of smashed everyone put in front of him – after the Lewis loss, and boy, did that fight suck. Uh, for those of you who may not remember that fight, A, I envy you. B, I only had one fight that was worse than that for the calendar year of, I think that was 18 or 19, I can't remember which, and that was CM Punk and Mike Jackson. Oof. Uh, so, yeah, Lewis and Ganu was terrible. I wouldn't hate a rematch between them at this point. Um, if Nganu and if they make Jones Miocic and Nganu doesn't want to wait, I think that's the fight to make for him. I I, I mean he's beaten everybody else. Like he's beaten Curtis Blades twice, finished him both times. He's beaten Dos Santos. He's beaten Overeem. Like he he's beaten everybody. <laughs> but Nganu hasn't had to answer the questions that Stipe asked of him in that fight. And he was found wanting in that fight. And 
I've not seen anything to make me believe that a second fight would go differently. Now, again, Ngannou has certainly worked on some things. He's tr- he's toned down. He's not nearly as he's still big, but he's not as heavy as he used to be. I'm not saying there aren't reasons to make that fight, and there aren't reasons to even think that uh, Ngannou might win. But I'm less interested in that, and I'm more interested in Jones Stipe uh, because while John's offense is not nearly what it used to be. His defense is still maybe the best in the sport, and his fight IQ is the best I've seen in MMA history. He makes the best decisions possible at every step of the way. I've never seen anybody who can do that like he does. So that's the fight I'm most interested in. Do you have a preference between those two fights? Pat, and uh, which way are you leaning there? Do you care at all? <laughs> no, my preference would absolutely be uh, John as, as the next opponent. The the unknown factor there helps, you know, the idea of can John actually move to heavyweight, which we've talked about for, gosh, I mean, I, I don't Ever. even remember. <laughs> I, I don't even remember exactly when it started, but I, you got to go back to the point in time where I, I think potentially Brock Lesnar was still an active MMA practitioner. So, we're talking like 2012, somewhere Nearly, around yeah, there. for closer to 10 years than not. Yeah, and, and the idea of John moving up and, and fighting for the heavyweight championship, and he's only gotten better in some and certain many respects since then, um, over that time. So the fact that we were talking about it then is kind of scary, but but it's something that I would love to see. Again, there's not necessarily unfinished business around the other heavyweights in the division, but there's the complete unknown factor of, can he do this at this level against this type of fighter? And I think it's potentially a lot more interesting than seeing what we've already seen, even if it would turn out different. Um, Well, especially given how John has, I don't know what the combination of things is that, because look again, in some respects, John is better now than he was eight years ago. In some, his skill set has changed, which is, to his eternal credit, a lot of guys try to stick with a style that no longer works way past its sell-by date. But between time and the amount of tape that there exists on John now, that, you know, I, I tend to think he lost the fight with Dominic Reyes. I scored it for him live. But at the end of that fight, for the first time ever watching a John Jones fight, I kind of went, you know what? I think he probably lost that. Um, I know some people uh, thought he thought that Tiago Santos beat him. I don't know what those people are smoking. Uh, I I don't find I have never found an argument for Santos winning that fight. I I just haven't. But it's kind of crazy when we talk about John that the only things beating him at this point are his age and the amount of tape study there is to game plan around him. Hmm. Like he's not being beaten. Technically he's not look at what, look at his toughest fights. Like what's causing those to be difficult for him recently. It's, and it's not that he's, you know, gotten quote unquote worse. It's just the inevitabilities of anyone fighting. And if the inevitabilities are the only thing beating you, that's a hell of a thing. <laughs> so I think the last thing we want to talk about with the main event that we can move on to the rest of this card, such as it was 
the legacy of Daniel Cormier, if this is his last fight, I'm sorry, uh, related to him, that being his last fight, I think because I, I think John was going to call out the winner of this fight regardless of who it was. I think if I think if DC had won here and had the potential for a fight with John, I think he'd have taken that. I think he would have stuck around for one more to potentially fight John at heavyweight. Uh, short of that, no, I think this was going to be his last. But uh, I'll give you the first kind of say on this about DC's legacy here because he's a great ambassador for the sport. He's very gregarious. He's very outgoing. He's very media trained and savvy. A lot of people like him and hold him in high esteem, which is certainly warranted. But what do you I tend to use I heard this analogy. I forget where. So I'm going to use it and apologize to whoever I stole it from. (laughs) If we're talking about, you know, the greatest of all time club, which is an exclusive club to begin with. Right. Like rarefied air to even get in the door here. But every club has its VIP room, right? Even the most exclusive club has this one spot that's like, no, you got to be even amongst all time greats. You've got to be ab- you've got to be next level, the very, very tip top to get into this, to get to sit at this table. And I don't think Cormier's at that table after this loss. I mean, again, he's. He's in good company. We're talking about him and guys like, you know, Max Holloway, Uriah Faber, Jose Aldo, BJ Penn, uh, I could, uh, Vanderlei Silva, Shogun. You know, these are all-time great fighters. But none of them are getting past that last velvet rope, you know? And that's part of it is that when you're talking in the sense of greatest of all time, you really have to really be one of the greatest of all time. And there's two big things that stop Daniel Cormier from really being one of those few who can be named as such. And it's because he came up short against two other guys in the same era multiple times. And you could say whatever you want to say about, you know, John's uh, drug test or what have you. But there's also a fight that counts between them. And Cormier still came up short in that one. You know, he had two performances against John, one where he was pretty much beaten unanimously in every round, the other where he fought better but then got finished. So that's, you know, again, there's nothing wrong with being a great fighter, but you can't call yourself the greatest of all time when there's a guy you just can't get past. And, oh, by the way, that guy is considered by many to be the greatest of all time because then you have empirical evidence right there against you. On top of that, when he moved up in weight and fought as a competitive heavyweight and became champion, there's another guy he lost two out of three to, and that's Stipe Miocic. And maybe Stipe isn't going to be regarded in the pound-for-pound club the way DC is because DC has done two weight classes as a world champion versus one for Stipe. But Stipe also beat him two out of three. And I believe has more successful title defenses under his belt. Stipe and, is the most successful UFC heavyweight champion ever. And there's, I think the debate whether or not Stipe is the best heavyweight ever is highly contentious. There is a case to be made for him in that discussion. Yeah, a hundred percent. And again, though, can you be the best of all time? If there's multiple guys who, 
beat you at your best multiple times. You can't. It just the argument doesn't fly. And while I think Daniel's great and he's always going to be seen as great, he's never going to be seen as the greatest, and nor should he. But that's not a reason to think what he accomplished isn't amazing and doesn't deserve recognition. Yeah, I looked back over not just uh, Cormier's MMA career, but like his athletic career more generally. Because I heard something that I wasn't that I believed because of the source. I heard someone say that Daniel Cormier never won a Division One national championship, and I kind of went, "Wait, what?" Because that doesn't like logically that doesn't track for me. The man's – he's one of – he's not the winningest guy out of Oklahoma State, but he's one of them. I – and I just kind of went, okay, wait. So I looked it up, and if you look at Cormier's athletic – his wrestling career, um, he was only – and we're talking collegiately here. He was only Division One for two of his four years. Uh, his first two, he was at a Division Two, where he won – you know, he won significant accolades, and Division Two wrestling is not nothing. Uh, there's a long debate between Division Two and Division One wrestling, and I'm not going to rehash it here. You don't care. But when he transferred to Oklahoma State and went Division One, his first year of D1 eligibility, he did not become an All-American, so he didn't even make it to the national tournament. His second year, he made it. But he came in second to maybe the best collegiate wrestler the United States has ever produced in Kale Sanderson. Yeah, there's a there's a one and a one A, and Kale is is one of them. Dan Gable is the other. Yeah, for those of you who don't know about Kale Sanderson, um, he was Division One for his entire four years at college, and for his entire collegiate career, he was undefeated. He's again, he might be the I don't know if Gable did that, but I think – point being, if uh, Sanderson wasn't the first guy to do that, he was the first guy in decades to do that. Uh, Sanderson would, of course, go on to win an Olympic gold medal, just you know that. And then he now coaches like the dynasty of all dynasties in collegiate wrestling at Penn State. Like, it, it's yeah, disgusting Penn how State good they are. Penn State is monstrous. So he ran in – point being, Cormier ran into – you know, maybe the best ever going to be the story of his career. He qualified. He, I mean, he, and again, coming in second to kale, everybody did. He wrestles internationally, which is not a jump. A lot of people can make a lot of guys don't go from the folk style of amateur of you know, collegiate to international freestyle there. It's a very different ball game in some respects. He did make that jump and he won a couple of major tournaments Qualifies for the Olympics and comes in fourth, so no medal, which sucks. And he ran into a guy who's very good to, there, too. I mean, but that's the level we're talking about here. Second trip to the Olympics, his kidneys shut down. He can't even compete. That really sucks. Moves on to MMA, amasses a good record at heavyweight, drops down to 205 eventually, and runs into the best ever, maybe. Goes up to heavyweight, beats the best heavyweight the UFC's ever produced once, and then loses to him twice. He's a guy who is absolutely an all-time great fighter, but he's not the greatest. And maybe that's a hard pill to swallow. Maybe you think I'm being too hard on the guy. 
because he and again i'm happy to stipulate the man could beat me to within an inch of my life blindfolded he's accomplished more athletically than the majority of humanity will in multiple lifetimes but if we're gonna get into this discussion yeah we're gonna have to look at stuff like this and that all counts and a lot of people, again, a lot of people like DC, and so, and maybe that counts for something too. The fact that he's been a pretty good ambassador for the sport thus far. But when I talk about how I rank these guys, I don't care about what you do outside the cage or the ring. I care about what you do inside of it. And maybe you feel differently. And this is a, this is a discussion I'm not terribly fond of having most of the time because. Inevitably, you run into people with slightly different personal criteria, at which point I go, okay, if you're going to discount everyone from the conversation who potentially failed a drug test, well, then we have an entirely different discussion to be had, right? Because then we have to discuss at what point do we count drug tests? Are we going to discount everyone pre-USADA? Are we certainly going to discount anyone who ever fought in Pride? Like, where – how are we drawing these lines of distinction? Yeah, what, what substances are we deciding are, are... – unfavorable to have tested for like what you know we're really splitting hairs here yeah and again when we talk about these you know when we're talking about the greatest you know in my mind you've got three or four that you have to decide between you've got john uh anderson silva george st pierre maybe demetrius uh i mean dj only lost once at flyweight and then and that was to a guy he arguably should have won that fight. I thought he did and had already had a win over. You know, you're talking about the most successful UFC champions of all time. And in the case of GSP, a two-weight world champion. And I, again, I'm not saying Cormier is not a great fighter, but if you have to, when we talk about this, if you have to make that distinction, where's that line of demarcation? I think he falls short of it. Uh, okay, let's move on to the rest of this card. Um, we can do this fairly rapidly, I think. Let me just kind of go through the rest of these, and then if there's anything we want to talk about, we can do that. So, uh, Marlon Vera defeated Sean O'Malley via TKO 440 of the first. <laughs> can I say I saw the best take on this, on not just this fight, but this card, because it relates to this fight? UFC 252 was such a great event we're going over a single calf kick landed by Marlon Mara like it's the Zapruder film. <laughs> because there's a discuss, and to be fair, there's a discussion to be had about whether or not, uh, in real time, I didn't see this. My, my disclaimer. I thought O'Malley just kind of injured himself stepping. Which he did. But it, if you look, rewatch the fight, it looks like that starts because of a calf kick that Vera lands. Now, the only reason this is relevant, if it's a freak injury to O'Malley, I think a rematch between the two would be warranted. If it's if it's an injury caused by something that Vera did, Vera beat him. Suck it up. <laughs> um, I mean, this is such an odd fight to get your head around because. Uh, I mean, it just is. Look, I'm not trying to take away from Vera because I took Vera's chances in this fight very seriously. The man's on a good winning streak at bantamweight, arguably had that win at featherweight. Uh, I seem to think he beat Song Yudong, 
Apparently, so does Joe Rogan if you didn't hear him the first 18 times. Yeah, a lot of people thought he won that fight. I can't remember how I scored it in real time, and I haven't rewatched it. <laughs> but long, I mean, even if we, so if we discount the featherweight sojourn, he's on a six-fight winning streak at bantamweight, which is pretty impressive. So the man's legit. So I, I don't know. I mean, what do you take away from this apart from, you know, I, I know that you laugh at O'Malley a little bit. Uh, a little? <laughs> I'm being genuous. <laughs> I'm being generous here. <laughs> so, I mean, again, do you take anything away from this? There is one thing kind of related to O'Malley that I want to touch on because I heard it brought up and I think it bears a bit of dis- a little bit of discussion. So your point on the fight and then my thing after that. Well, you know, he had a leg injury prior in a fight and he yeah. got he was he was very fortunately blessed with an opponent who is <laughs> as dumb as the day is long and decided Wow, he has a bad leg. What should I do here? I know. I'll take him down. And therefore, he doesn't have to put weight on that leg and can use his grappling, which I'm not that great at. Uh, yeah, this, this makes perfect sense. Uh, I, I don't even remember that jabroni's name, but he should never would, be allowed to fight anywhere again. That would be Andre Sukumtot, the Asian sensation. Yeah, the less said about him, the better. And then we go forward from there, right? And then we have... Again, he has this fight happening against his best opponent in terms of caliber. I know people will say, oh, well, Eddie Wineland. Yeah, Eddie Wineland would have been a great name in, like, 2013, um, not so much 2020. I would even say even 13, it was uh, not as valuable it was in, in 2008. Yeah, and that's fair. But, you know, you're talking again about him finally facing a, a – Semi-live opponent, although Marlon Vera is not seen as somebody who's like a world beater. Uh, because, again, against the highest level of opposition he's generally seen, he's lost. I know – I think I think the only fight I really remembered him having prior to this was he had lost to John Lineker and beaten Brad Pickett. Those are the two fights I remember him in. Um, he's been – the UFC has done him a little bit dirty. Uh, he's been doing a lot of undercard appearances. So you have to be somebody like me to pay attention to them. Yeah. So anyway, again, there's all this hype around O'Malley that's kind of undeserved. Um, and he's talked about as the second coming. But you have a situation here where he absorbs a really wicked kick. All of a sudden he steps and he can't put weight on his leg yet again. Uh, only this time he's not put in there with somebody who's going to do him every possible favor to make this fight last and let him win. He fights somebody who is going to try to press him, make him put weight on that leg and see how he responds. And he lost. So that happens. And I'm sure they're going to say, Oh no, he was just injured, blah, blah, blah. Well, at a certain point we might start considering that he might be a little fragile and maybe not made out for this sport. If he can't take stuff like that. You know, and again, all of this hype and all oh, sugar time and all, you know, what has he really done to justify any of it? He, he hasn't. He hasn't beaten anybody that should really make you pick this guy up and put him on your radar saying, oh, wow. He had, you know, two knockouts that were considered phenomenal knockouts against Eddie Wineland and uh, Quinones was the other fellow, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he'd do first round knockouts over them. Okay, that's great. What else have you done? You haven't done anything. 
So you knock out two guys who weren't ranked in, you know, the top 15, let alone 10, and all of a sudden you're you're somebody? You, come on. I'm so tired of the hype around this guy. And I'm not demeaning him as, as a person or anything like that. You know, the hype, he, he's not his own hype. The, the promotional machine behind him is what annoyed me. And the fact that it was blown up so spectacularly last night it, with him just clutching his leg on the ground in pain and getting stretchered out uh, over, you know, potentially a leg kick. Maybe it's time well, to rethink how you feel about Sean O'Malley. Well, I think what happened, uh, he had the leg kick issue. And we've seen other guys have that same issue, right? Uh, Brett Primus and Michael Chandler is a good example. Uh, the first, uh, the second fight between DJ and Henry Cejudo. Cejudo wound up tripping over his own foot for the entire first round. Like we've seen that happen. We've seen that happen from calf kicks like that. I think what happened with O'Malley, and I think you can see this, he goes to step and he doesn't get his foot under him, so he his toes catch the canvas and he winds up kind of like folding over onto his foot. And I I think he. Uh, so I think he injured himself on that, which, again, comes about because of something Vera did. I'm not trying to take away from Vera's win. He caused what happened. And then, like you said, if O'Malley's still staggering around, there's plenty of other people who get deer in the headlights over this. Oh, my opponent can't stand. What do I do? Ah, Vera, like, OK, you can't stand. I'm going to have fun with this. And that elbow he landed that kind of prompted the stoppage. Good Lord. Like he tried to drive, he could have driven a nail with that elbow. Like that was hard. So I'm not, I am not trying to de- uh, demean Vera here. V- give that man some top shelf competition. I think he's ready for the step up. Uh, the question I wanted to ask you, and this kind of relates to O'Malley, he uses a little bit of that uh, kind of bouncing, uh, st- stance switching style, and. We've seen some guys, we've seen more people now kind of adopt elements of that. And I, you've been around the combat sports space a long time. I very briefly want your opinion. With the injury history that has accumulated on guys like Dominic Cruz, uh, Robert Whitaker, just a I mean, Whitaker's injuries issues have not all been knee or lower extremity related, but he has had those issues. Uh, Connor's had knee issues. Uh, you know, a lot of the guys who kind of use that bouncing stance switching style, very light on your feet. Uh, is that maybe uh, not the best style to adopt for career longevity? Because it seems to take a pretty serious toll on your feet and your knees. I'll put it to you like this. It, when And you know this, Robert, because you're a very educated student of, of combat sports. When you're going to finally throw a strike – and an effective strike at that, you're going to have to do one thing. You're going to have to plant your weight and then be ready to shift it. So imagine constantly being up in the air, bounce, 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 plant. Imagine doing that repeatedly to both sides of your body. And especially when you do it more to one side than the other. Um, and and listen, anybody listening to this, get up, get up into your, your living room or, or outside or wherever you are and bounce on the balls of your feet for 20 to 30 seconds. And very suddenly just 
stop and plant yourself into a stance with one foot leading, one foot back. The weight's going to be on one of those feet. Plant it, plant it with the weight really going on to one of those feet. Tell me how your ankle and your knee feel after you do that. Then imagine doing it repeatedly, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 times over the course of 25 minutes. You have to condition yourself very, very immaculately to be able to do that without getting hurt on a consistent level. And you have to really work hard at it in order to time it right and not injure yourself. And guess what? In a live combat situation, perfect circumstances don't always happen for you. And you have to adjust on the fly. And when you constantly put that stress and trauma into your joints, into your tendons, into your ligaments, it's not... It's not what they're meant to be doing. You know, that's why you see some guys have a more flat-footed approach. Uh, some guys have an on-your-toes approach, but they don't do the stance switching and shifting, uh, at least to that frequency of it. Uh, they're not big on really heavy feints, which I think more often than not are what the biggest problem in this stance is. I think that's more prone to causing you to get hurt than actually planting and working off of your plant. I think it's more the sudden feints where you actually don't commit and you just shift your body and tense up and loosen really quick and kind of throw your own body off. So I, I think a lot of problems do happen from that over time. And because we've seen that injury frequently happen to the guys who employ it, I don't think it's coincidental. I, I certainly think it's something to pay attention to going forward, if nothing else, because there are there are definitely advantages to that style, but – a, there's a price to be paid down the road anyway, and B, you've got to properly condition yourself for it. Uh, again, I'm going to mention Dominic Cruz again because he's kind of the most visible proponent of that style. Um, Cruz mentions that uh, he feels one of the reasons his feet got as injured as they did was in the preparation for – this is from his his uh, his episode of the Joe Rogan podcast, which is a very good episode, by the way. Uh, he talks a lot about some of his uh, mental health struggles and his depression and whatnot, which is a little bit surprising to hear him open up about that stuff. Uh, while Cruz is a very talkative person, he's also a little bit guarded a lot of the time. Um, he he says he thinks part of the problem was he went from being on the couch, not able to do anything with, his, with one of his previous injuries, to... Straight into, you know, sprint routines for cardio ahead of the Dillashaw fight. This would be his first, uh, his fight with TJ. And he feels that that's kind of what tore up the bottoms of his feet, uh, which is a, still a problem he deals with. Uh, and I, I think that, I, again, I'm not a doctor, but I imagine that probably didn't help. <laughs> uh, and if you want to know about, you know, again, Cruz details some of his personal struggles with that injury on that show. And Daniel Cormier, when talking about Cruz mentions that uh i forget what fight this might have been ahead of the cejudo fight when he just kind of mentions you know some of the injuries that cruz has dealt with and is still dealing with just to put on dress shoes he has to tape up his feet nowadays i have no reason to think daniel cormier is lying about that so there there is a price and if you want to if you want to fight that way there's a proper conditioning routine you have to go through and it doesn't really allow for a lot of leeway. You have to be in that condition all the time in order to make it work and not destroy yourself physically. 
Okay, next up, we can be brief with this one. Jarzinho Rosenstreich defeats Junior Dos Santos via TKO, 347 <laughs> of the second. Oh, so so for everybody listening to this, I got I have to I have to talk about this. Robert and I are shooting some messages back and forth while the uh, fights are happening, and so we we're we're talking about this and everything. And right before this fight's about to start, Robert's exact quote is. I fully expect Dos Santos to fight a very intelligent game plan for the first round and a half before uh, needlessly abandoning it and getting knocked out. Yeah, that's about what happened. <laughs> uh, look, the small cage does not favor Junior. He needs space to work. Uh, Rosenstreich kind of gave him most of the first round. He's a very patient striker, and then by the end, he's like, all right, I'm going to back you up. You're not good backing up. Then along the fence, I know you're going to have to shift to, in this case, it would be Dos Santos' own left because I'm coming at you from that angle. I'm going to shift through on this overhand right, and you're going to go down because that's kind of what happens to Junior at this point. Um, I love Junior. You know, the man's run-up to the belt was the stuff of legend. If you look at the tear he goes on to become champion, I mean, he... Just straight up, you know, mercs a bunch of really good guys. But he took a lifetime's worth of abuse from Cain Velasquez across two fights. And, you know, time doesn't go backwards. You know, from the neck down, Junior looks in the best shape of his career, maybe. From the neck up, he looks like a 40-year-old grandfather with that mustache. And I'm not knocking the stash, by the way. If you want to rock it, go for it. You do you. But I think at this point, his skill allows him to be competitive because it's heavyweight. But he's washed. He's, he's just washed as a fighter at this point. I, I don't know what else to say about it. Still a top 10. Derek Lewis. <laughs> it, hold on. Derek Lewis is number three and Junior beat him decisively. Think about that. I, I, I don't mean to hate on Derek Lewis too much, but I view his success as an indictment of the entire division. All right, next up, Daniel Pineda defeated Herbert Burns via TKO, 437 of the second. Um, really nice stuff from Pineda here, believe it or not. Um, Love this. He hit a... The sec he wins the first round pretty clearly. Uh, Burns gets a little bit too caught up trying to play guard, and Pineda's response to that seemed to be, okay, I'm going to punch you in the face repeatedly. <laughs> you play yes. guard. Uh, and, I mean, that sounds like I'm being dismissive of guard work. If your head is stuck up against the fence, don't try to play guard. Get up. That barrier radically alters how you can work off of your back. Don't try to do don't try to throw up arm bars from there. Don't go for your own plata. Get your feet on the hips. Try to off balance your opponent. Post up, wall walk, reset. I don't care how good you are off of your back. If there's anything approximating skill parity, even if you are better, if you are not light years better in that spot, you shouldn't be there. Just don't. You know, fundamentals work. They really do. <laughs> Uh, second round, Burns gets a takedown, gets the back of Pineda, uh, gets mount for a bit, but there's a really nice sweep that Pineda hits and just kind of out hustles. I mean, he does it right technically, but there's a point in that sweep when all things being equal and all things are equal at that moment, 
whoever moves faster, whoever wants it more, to use that cliche, gets it. Pineda got it. Got on top and just resumed landing bombs on Burns. Uh, nice stuff from Pineda. Pineda kind of washed out of the UFC a few years ago. Uh, ended his run there on a... Uh, I mean, his overall record the first time through was, I think, uh, three and four. But he ended that on a one on a he ended that one and four in his last five with two losing streaks. Uh, the last two losses coming to Diego Brandau and Robert Whiteford. This is being 2013 and 14. Uh, so. The cup was uh, somewhat deserved, but he bounced around through some other organizations, Legacy, Bellator, Fury, the PFL. And made his way back, and he, you know, he killed good. I mean, he had a nasty cut on his left eye. He got, I think if that fight goes, if that round ends, I don't think they let him out for the for the third round. I mean, that eye was swollen and cut. Like, he should, he would have been done at, between rounds on that fight. Yeah, he got clipped with the knee that really caused that. And it had to, it had to hit him right probably on the upper orbital part of the upper orbital bone uh, because of the way it swelled. And because of the placement of the cut, normally if you get cut and it bleeds out like that, it's it's going to actually detract the swelling. But this swelled really quickly and really heavily, and the bleeding really kept going as well. So this was definitely something with his orbital bone um, on the upper part of it. But, man, what, what, a, what a really great effort from, from Pineda here who knew this was a big opportunity for him. So he cut 21 pounds in two weeks, which is a lot of a lot That's of weight. a lot, especially if we're talking about fighting at uh, at featherweight. That's a lot of weight. It's it's hugely significant, and uh, you know, it's for for him to do that, and they talked about this in the interview after for Burns to miss weight significantly, having much advance notice of this. It really lit a fire under him, and it was it was visible. There was definitely one guy in that fight who was hungry and one guy who wasn't, and the efforts reflected that. So, yeah, good to see Daniel Pineda back. Uh, and really, really great, great ground stuff. And, again, I, I know Rogan made the point on this that this is the difference between – or, or and maybe it wasn't Joe Rogan. It might have been Dominic Cruz, but one of them made the point about how this is the difference between – somebody just using jujitsu and somebody using mixed martial arts jujitsu where you are mixing in elements of ground and pound, uh, different positional, uh, escapes and, and not necessarily pins in terms of wrestling, but, uh, weight shifts that are not common in jujitsu rolling, but that are in a different setting where other freestyle performances are allowed. And one guy just seemed utterly unprepared for any of that. And seemed to take everything for granted. He landed one good knee. He got a takedown in because of the desperation maybe that set in after his first round performance. And Pineda's eye not allowing him to see it coming as much as he could have. But even on the ground, he was reversed. Partly due to a a good lateral shift in weight. But also because he was too tired to fight back effectively. Yeah, I was talking with uh, Andrew Graham, who's been on the show a few times a little bit during this fight, and he mentioned something interesting to me that I'll touch on briefly here. You know, sweeps in MMA are not as common as they are in some of the grappling arts that, you know, go into MMA. And it's an interesting area of the sport that has not fully been explored yet, is, you know, guys who are able to hit really good sweeps. And I'm curious to... 
just as an area of development to watch going forward as MMA continues, how guys start setting up sweeps and using them is going to be a big thing because, you know, if you ask who are some of the best, you know, sweepers in MMA, you're still probably stuck talking about the Noguera brothers. And don't get me wrong, they were great at it. I oh, mean, yeah. Little Nog still in his last fight was hitting that deep half peak out sweep on Shogun. Like, it still works. And I'm so I'm curious to see how sweeping develops. Uh, okay, next up, last on the main card, Marab Dwalish really defeated John Dodson via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. I have the the only thing I'm going to say about this. I saw this tweet from Bilal Muhammad come up on the broadcast, and I'm going to quote it because I thought it was funny. John Dodson's not fighting like he used to be a flyweight. He's fighting like he used to be a heavyweight. No activity. I'm not the biggest Bilal Muhammad fan, such as that is, but that's a great observation. <laughs> that was so good. We we were dying at that because I think I think they brought up the stat in the first round that John Dodson had thrown something like 11 total strikes. Dodson, and, and, uh, I uh, I saw this looked up uh, after the fact because Dodson's not a high activity guy to begin with, but his his average was something like I think three significant strikes. Uh, can't remember if it was a minute, might've been a minute. It's like 3.4 something per minute, which is low. But even in this fight, he was below his average in all three rounds. Um, I, I don't have a whole lot to say here. Um, Dwalish really is a very one dimensional fighter, but between his toughness and his gas tank, you better know how to deal with that because he's not going to stop. Yeah. And there, there was no answer coming from Dodson. And, and again, it's a point you brought up that if you don't just stand there and allow Dodson an opportunity, it's really easy to outwork him. Such as the case last night where I don't think, uh, you know, I don't think he saw anything really, really outstanding come his way but it's just that it was consistently coming his way and he didn't want to do anything. Yeah. Uh, Dwalis really is, again, he's ranked. Um, I know he started his UFC run 0-2. Um, one of those was just a tough fight. The other was a fight he was winning and then got caught in a guillotine at the end of the third. Choked completely unconscious, but no one noticed it until the fight ended, but you can't be saved by the bell. So he lost. Um... But since then, good winning streak. You know, step that man up. All right, I'm going to read off the rest of these, and then we can talk about them uh, if you feel so inclined. Vince Pichel defeated Jim Miller via unanimous decision, 229-28, 129-27. Disagreed with the 10-8 in the second, but I suppose there's an argument for it. Uh, I love Jim Miller. I mean, who doesn't? But he's a little bit, o- he's, you know, over the hill. And Pichel is a tough matchup for him stylistically, even when Miller's at his best. Uh, Vir- uh, Virna Jandiroba defeated Felice Herrick via armbar, 144 of the first. Uh, this was almost comical. Uh, the skill disparity in the jiu-jitsu realm between these two was catastrophic. Uh, Daniel Chavez defeated TJ Brown via unanimous decision, 29-28 on all three cards. I don't remember much about this fight. Um, 
Chavez had a good first round, but he's one of those guys who puts forth so much energy that he's not really there in the third. He just banked the first two and then kind of went, yeah, if I lose the third, I lose the third. Um, Livia Hanata Souza defeated Ashley Yoder via unanimous decision, 229-28, 130-27. This fight sucked. Uh, and then on the early fight, early prelims, Chris Dawkins defeated Parker Porter via TKO, 428 of the first. Uh, Dawkins had good hand speed, and that was exacerbated because he was throwing straight punches, whereas Porter, not so much. And your fight of the night was actually the first fight. Kai Kamaka and Tony Kelly, uh, Kai Kamaka wins 29-28 across all three sco- scorecards. Um, I thought Kelly was done after the first, but credit to him, he rallied. Uh, this was your fight of the night. This was a darn good fight, actually. Um, I don't think you saw this one, Pat. I would say if you could look it up, uh, it's it's worth your time. I was, so so I, I, I left work. And, you know, me, me and a good friend of mine who I work with, the plan was we were going to just jump in a cab, head back to, to my apartment and order, order the pay-per-view. And the fights we got to see, we got to see uh, Felice Harry get tapped out very quickly, and we got to see Jim Miller against uh, Vince Pichel. But while we were still at work and uh, we're, you know, finished up what we're doing, he gets a message saying, it looks like we missed a potential, f- potential fight of the night candidate already. And it was in reference to that fight. Because we were, you know, still working at the time, and uh, like we uh, we figured that out, and we were like, man, like if there's something on here, we need to just find time to go back and watch it, which unfortunately didn't happen. But it's definitely one I want to uh, just catch this week, um, and really see, uh, you know, really see what I missed out on, because all I've heard are tremendous things about that fight, uh, specifically the comeback from the, what happened in the first round. Um. So you kind of know what to expect. Kamaka is just killing Tony Kelly with body shots in that first round. I mean, he's badly hurt to the body. And you and I both know that's a hard recover. (laughs) But he does. And then in the second round, he starts pushing into the clinch, utilizing a lot of elbows and knees and just getting through the boxing range and into that into the into that real tight space. And. Kamaka doesn't really have much of an answer for that. And then we go into the third even, and it's it's a really good fight. So that was UFC 252. Much thanks to everyone who stopped by and commented and followed along. We had a I, – look, some of these smaller cards I know no one stops by for and no one feels compelled to really talk about. I don't blame anybody, I hope that, which is why I appreciate you when you do. Uh, Occasionally for these bigger ones, we get some nice discussions going here. We had some discussions about what constitutes, uh, you know, the greatest, uh, where we had our where some of us had our different lists set out, where DC might have landed. I will say again, I'm going to throw this out there about DC. If he had won this fight, I think he would have been in that upper tier discussion. You know, you've still got the you still got the specter of John Jones, but you go up to heavyweight, which is maybe your more natural weight class, given your body type. And then you beat the best heavyweight the UFC's produced twice, you know, two out of three, I think he would have been in that discussion. But you lost, and that might be cruel, but the world is cold. You know, there's one thing I wanted to ask, and uh, you, you would know better than I do based on this. Um, so with the Reebok sponsorship, and we know it's coming to an end anyway, so, you know, that uh, Venom will be the new sponsor Did next you see- year. <laughs> I, I don't know if you saw this. 
<laughs> they did that up. We have special jerseys for this event thing, right? I think one of the ones they held up had a typo on it. Had a, oh. had a guy's name misspelled. And I just, part of me wonders if somebody didn't do that intentionally, because otherwise, just what the hell? <laughs> like, if that's not a deliberate, like, the best callback ever, then you should be fired. Now, okay, so part of what, and you would, under, again, have a better understanding of this than I do. Is it true that they're, they dictate pay based on how many fights someone has had in the UFC? Yes. So Jim Miller basically made a million point seventeen dollars last night. Um, it, it's tiered and it caps. Um, I can't remember. I'm gonna go off this. I'm going off the off of memory. I can't remember specifically. Um, but it, my the the numbers that were released. This was a little bit after the deal was announced. Um, your first. Uh, I think three to five fights. I can't remember where the break was. You made a uh, thousand. Next tier was two. I forget where I forget all the specifics. Champions and title challengers were um, fifty and forty or forty and thirty. I can't remember. And then the next rung down was I think you were guaranteed like twenty five or thirty. So he's so he's still made somewhere around twenty five thirty thousand dollars just for fighting last night. Yeah, his and, his, he's, uh, and he's fought something like five times in the last seventeen months. Probably, yeah. And uh, like when they instituted that policy, Jim Miller was already at the top tier for seniority. <laughs> yeah. So you know, part of me last night after he fought Vince Pichel and he started off the fight very well. Um, just didn't have the ability to keep up with and maintain it. And, and credit to Pichel, who fought a great fight against Jim Miller. Uh, one of the things we left at is that Pichel is actually older than Jim Miller and has something like 20 less fights. Yeah. Um, but, but again, because I, I think Pichel, I think we, we actually made the joke, Pichel has 14 fights while Miller has 14 losses prior to this fight. <laughs> yeah. You know, and uh, like 27 wins or something. But you know, it's one of those things where after the fight, I'm like, you know, I just don't see a reason for Jim to keep doing this because, you know, he, he fought kind of himself out of the title picture a long time ago. And I hate saying that. That's true. But there's always room for those guys who aren't going to be world champion, but they're going to put on good fights. Occasionally, they'll get matched up with an up and comer who they'll either take to school or the up and comer really proves himself by beating them. And Jim's even kind of not even in that anymore, really. Uh, you know, it's a different role for him now. But uh, I, I was like, man, I don't want to see Jim fight just to take these fights and take losses and take punishment. You know, I, I I really appreciate the guy too much to that. But then when I find out he's making a minimum of like $25,000 just alone on the Reebok deal, that uh, will, fight yeah, on Jim. Do, do whatever you want to do. Yeah, he will get that for being, I think they call it like the athlete compliance Whatever, because they called it Reebok money for a while, and then Reebok said, hey, we don't pay fighters. We pay the UFC. They decide how it gets distributed. And the UFC had to backtrack for legal reasons. Yep. Oh, man, poor Reebok. Like, they shot themselves in the foot a little bit on this whole deal, but then, like, so I'm willing to throw the blame at them that is deserved. But they got done dirty by a lot of the... (laughs) By a lot of the people involved, too. Like, that's not all on them. 
So oh, it's, yeah. Venom, it's Venom's uh, issue now. It will be. Um, we don't know the numbers for that deal yet. Um, I will say this: if it's less than a hundred million dollars paid out per year, uh, somebody should lose their job. <laughs> you know, somebody did the math on this actually, as far as how much value Reebok got out of what they paid, because Reebok paid, I think, seventy million over six years, something like that. Forgive me, I can't remember off the top of my head. So they that breaks down very favorably per year for what Reebok is paying to be the exclusive apparel sponsor for something for the UFC, which not only affects the UFC broadcast, but actually does trickle down to all the fighters uh, and like all their social media presences. Somebody did the math on the advertising, the free advertising they were getting from being exclusive like that for fighters. And it was like 10 times what they were paying. That was ridiculous. I'm not shocked by that in the least. So yeah, I, Hopefully Venom will pay more. Like again, we don't know the specifics of the structure or whatnot, but we'll be watching that when those numbers become available at some point next year. All right, moving on to UFC this upcoming event because the machine keeps on turning. Yes, it does. UFC on ESPN plus, uh, not plus, sorry, UFC on ESPN 14. Um, kind of a one fight card here. This uh, kind of it is. Uh, sorry, fi- uh, 15, not 14. My mistake. Um, this was supposed to be the event headlined by the long-discussed fight between Zabit Magomed Sharipov and Yair Rodriguez, which would have been... Uh, I'm not very high on either guy. I've, I think Zabit's gas tank is a real issue, and Rodriguez... I don't know what to say about that guy. <laughs> I've said stuff in the past. I'm just going to kind of let that stand. It's not that they're bad fighters, but it would have been th- this fight would have been interesting to me because Zabit actually knows how to do all the spinny stuff technically correct. But we've seen Yair actually fight over five rounds, whereas Zabit seems to gas the third. So <laughs> there's a real question there about how that would play out. But Yair broke his ankle. Zabit would not accept a short notice replacement and then complained about everyone ducking him despite a bunch of people volunteering for this fight. Uh, and to be abundantly clear, Zabit's not complaining. His manager's complaining for him because Zabit doesn't actually speak English. I don't know who thinks he's the one tweeting this stuff, but it's not him, guys. He, but but let's give credit where it's due. His manager's actually acting like a manager. Uh, I think he's managed by Ali Abdelaziz. I'm not sure. Um, and, you know... You saw that thing the other day where Ali was like, none of my fighters will be interviewed by ESPN outlets now after some perceived outrage. Like, okay, buddy, way to screw your fighters. Just the biggest sports outlet in the world. We won't talk to them. Anyway, your new main event for this card is Pedro Munoz and Frankie Edgar. These two were supposed to fight earlier. It got scrapped after uh, Munoz had a positive test for COVID. Uh, they were orig- they were kind of thought to be on 252. They got bumped here uh, because this card desperately needed depth. Um, I picked Munoz when this was announced. I'm still picking Munoz. Look, Frankie is an absolute legend, but he's washed. He's still good enough to compete. That's how good he is. But you know, you and I mentioned you said to me off air. There's not a lot of difference at this point between Frankie Edgar and Jim Miller. Like apart from 
how high Edgar did succeed at one point, and I think that's probably accurate. Uh, he's lost his last two fights. I mean, sure, he lost to Max Holloway. Max is great. Like Max is an all-time is one of the best featherweights ever, if not the best. Uh, we'll see how, whether or not Volkanovski can give him a run for that particular title. But Frankie's one and three in his last four. He got knocked out by Brian Ortega, beat Cub Swanson, lost the decision to Holloway, and then got finished in about three minutes by the Korean Zombie. That to me is more telling. When you get, it's not that uh, Chan Sung Jung is some kind of gimmick or bad fighter. He's not. Okay. He he's not. Used to be more than he is now, but. When that guy's checking your chin like that, um, especially when you're Frankie and you kind of rely on your chin as much as he does, that's a that's a worrying indicator for me. Uh, by contrast, we have Munoz coming off of a loss to Aljamain Sterling, who, you know, might be the best bantamweight in the world. Um, he had a split decision with John Dodson that I kind of thought he won. But other than that, I mean... Munoz is a fairly unappreciated guy at bantamweight. I mean, he debuted and lost to Austin Sow. Not got Cody Harbrand. Yeah, that that's a that's a wild fight. Uh, so you had the loss to Sterling, which sucks if you're Munoz trying to make your headway. But you know, Sterling might be champion in 18 months. Wouldn't surprise me. So I, I like Munoz here, despite the joke about Munoz being the bantamweight for guys who don't like bantamweight because he's slow enough to be seen. I think Edgar's just too far past it at this point, and Munoz hits really hard. Frankie's footwork and angles were revolutionary at a time when no one understood how to move their feet. Now that people have kind of caught on, he's... I mean, I said this, uh, I think, when I talked about when I did a Dominic Cruz study, the same year that Frankie Edgar makes everyone think footwork, his footwork is brilliant because he dances around Sean Shirk, who stands like his feet are in concrete boots with T-Rex arms. You have Dominic Cruz doing what he's doing against, you know, guys who actually understand how to move. Edgar benefited from the disparity in the fighters he fought. And to his credit, he exploited it. But he's not fighting those guys anymore. He's fighting guys who know how to move a little bit. And if his movement is not really benef- is not opening up his game, his game kind of falls apart. Frankie benefits from being able to blend wrestling and striking while moving around and you not necessarily understanding the ins and outs of all the angles. And again, his angles are not especially complicated. It's more, hey, I'm going to L-step, and oh, you're going to try and completely reposition yourself. I can attack you while you're stepping around. Munoz isn't really that guy. I think Munoz takes this, um, especially over five rounds. I just don't think Frankie's durability is there anymore. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, it's a it's a different time, and Frankie Edgar's not an elite-level championship caliber fighter anymore and the stuff that made his game so exceptional at that time is not as unique as it was there are guys who are more used to it guys who are used to training how to deal with it and how to use it so it's it's more a case of mma catching up with frankie as opposed to frankie catching up with mma um and just the evolution of especially particularly the stand-up striking angles that are being used. And 
you know, Munoz has seen them. Munoz knows how to deal with them. And I don't think Frankie hits hard enough to put Munoz in danger the way a Cody Garbrandt did and couldn't take well, him out and finish yeah, him. Yeah, I mean, he ate Garbrandt's punches, and Garbrandt has some he- – Garbrandt swings heavy leather. Yeah, Gar- Garbrandt is probably the singularly hardest puncher in that division. I don't think that's hyperbole. I'd buy that. I, yeah. I would buy that actually if we're just talking about straight punching power. Yeah, I'd buy yeah, that. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not saying as a whole, but in in terms of straight punching power, because 90% of Frankie's stand-up offense is punches, and you know he he throws kicks, he throws elbows, he doesn't throw a plethora of either, and he doesn't throw either of them particularly hard. He also doesn't punch particularly hard. Um, he really has to wear you down and throw combinations, and even those are less frequent from him than we've seen. If Frankie has any shot in this fight, he's got to use his wrestling, which is probably a, a sadly forgotten element of his game that was very, very good for a very long time, uh, e- even though he started using it more as a defensive tool to force guys to stand up and face him at those odd angles and light them up on the feet. But but again, this is a guy who's used to fighting wrestlers. He's fought Brian Caraway. Not that Caraway is a world beater, but he finished Caraway pretty quickly, uh, knowing that Caraway was going to try to come in and wrestle him. And, you know, he, he's he's kind of seen, for the most part, what Frankie's going to throw at him. So I, I just I just don't see this as a good matchup for Frankie. And I think he's probably going to lose this one. All right. Um, we mentioned this, you know, the how diminished this card is, the, what oh, the main event God. was supposed to be. How does have a job? Hang on. Also supposed to be on this card was the fight between UL Romero and Uriah Hall. That was, uh, I think, just this last week that had to be removed. I think Hall, uh, excuse me, Romero had an injury, which sucks. I would have loved that fight. I'm just going to go through the rest of this card, and then, Pat, if there's anything you want to say about it after that, we can do that. We have Ovin St. Preux against Alonzo Menafield. Ovin St. Preux coming off of a failed move up to heavyweight when he was defeated by Ben Rothwell who himself was coming off of a significant layoff. He's taking on Alonzo Menafield. Uh, Menafield has gone 2-1 and one in the UFC, coming off of a loss to Devin Clark. Ovin St. Preux was a, has been a young and promising fighter for about two decades at this point, and about, <laughs> about eight years ago, he stopped being both young and promising. Um, Marcin Procnio will fight Mike Rodriguez. I... Uh, I'm remembering Mike Rodriguez correctly. I am not. I don't know who I was thinking he was. Uh, go with Procno because Rodriguez has a pretty terrible record in the UFC. Welterweight fight between Daniel Rodriguez and Takashi Sato. I actually like Sato uh, a fair bit. He's had just one loss in the UFC when he fought Bilal Muhammad, and Muhammad turns out to be pretty darn good. Um, Sato's fairly legitimate. His run in Pancrase is pretty good. So I'm going to pick him there, but Rodriguez, oh, wait, Rodriguez is the guy who knocked out Tim, or submitted Tim Means. That's a good fight. Okay, okay. no I one's like going to know. I like Sato for one reason. All right. Uh, he used to read comic books all the time, and then one day his brother threw them all out, and then his dad came home with a new comic book for him to try because uh, he was crying and crying and crying. And it was a comic based about a judo champion. And then he decided to just become a judo champion. You know, I'm not, this might be a cultural thing. 
it seems like sports manga in Japan inspire people a lot more than any sort of re- comparable comic does here in the United States. Well, in, in Japan, you've got stuff like that and Hajime no Ippo and, you know, good stuff. Whereas here in the U.S., we have Super Pro. Fair point. Uh, so that's actually a pretty good fight between Rodriguez and Sato. That And he's a, he's a judo champion who trains with Henry Hooft. That's a good combination, actually. Yeah, it's a great combination. Uh, as for the – that's your main card right now. As for the prelims, Amanda L- uh, Lemos and Mizuke Inoue. What's Inoue been doing? She's been off for a while. Uh, she fought in August of last year. Okay, but that was after a year left. Okay, yeah. Probably go with Inoue there. Um, Austin Hubbard and Joe Selecki. Is Austin Hubbard who I think he is? He isn't. Um, no, he is not. Okay, sorry, I was confusing him with someone else who has a similar name and is just terrible. Austin Hubbard's pretty good. Um, I'll pick Hubbard there again. Hubbard's pretty good. Uh, Maria Agapova will fight Shayna Dobson. God, who could possibly care about this? <laughs> Dobson's UFC record is 1-3, and, and she's on a three-fight losing streak. She got knocked out by Priscilla Cachoeira in her last fight. If you're losing to Priscilla Cachoeira, you should not be in the UFC. Um, Dwight Grant will fight Jared Gooden. I don't know anything about Gooden. I think I've seen Grant fight once or twice. Yeah, a few times. Don't remember much about him, but I've seen him. Um, Ike Villanueva will fight Jorge Gonzalez. It's light heavyweight. Who cares? Oh, thank you. Bantamweight. Timur Valiev, finally. He was supposed to fight on a card a couple of weeks ago. I was really looking forward to his fight because I like Valiev. Um, that uh, that got moved. I can't remember what happened to that fight. Somebody had an issue. Am I confusing? No, I'm not confusing him with anyone else. He had an, Someone had an issue and couldn't make the event. Uh, he's fighting Mark Striegel now. I, I was going to pick Valiev. I, again, if you haven't seen Timur Valiev stuff from the – World Series of Fighting at the time, or the PFL now. Look him up. Valiev's good. Uh, there's a welterweight fight between Matthew Semmelsberger and Carlton Minus. That that almost has to be a joke. <laughs> uh, I don't know anything about either guy. And a fight between Maki Patolo and Impa uh, Kasanege. Um, Patolo's actually... Uh, he had that loss to Darren Stewart, but he's usually good for a somewhat watchable fight, if nothing else. I'll pick him here just because, sure. Okay. Is there anything positive you would like to say about the rest of that card, Pat? Uh, yeah, it's on ESPN Plus and not ESPN. Uh, the main card is on ESPN. Oh, then no, I have nothing positive. <laughs> Look, ESPN is desperate for content. What do you want me to say? Yeah, it's, this is a horribly, horribly diminished card. Um, not really anything else I can say about it. It's it's not great. But I will be covering it, so you can just read my report instead of watching it yourself next week in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania. And we all uh, owe Robert a debt of gratitude for that. Uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, um, some fights got announced. I think the only one I want to touch on briefly here... 
A featherweight fight's been kind of in the works off and on for a while between Brian Ortega and the Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung, which is a good fight. I'm happy to see the fight. Uh, Ortega's been out for a while uh, since the... He hasn't fought since he fought Max Holloway, actually. Um, but look, you start hooking up with Halle Berry, I'm not going to judge what you do with your free time. For those of you who don't know, that is, in fact, a joke. <laughs> um, uh, Halle Berry's been hanging around a lot of UFC events. She has a movie coming out. I think he... Uh, again, she's met Ortega. I think he did some stunt coordination for some of her movies for the, again, the one where she plays an MMA fighter as well. So it's not based on nothing that they've been kind of seen together, but to the best of my knowledge, there is zero romantic, uh, stuff going on. Um, fun story about Halle Berry in that movie, actually. She's, I think the climactic battle is her against, you know, the unstoppable Russian and they cast Valentina Shevchenko. And during the filming, uh, Valentina busted some of Hallie's ribs uh, with a body kick. So, I mean, I imagine poor Valentina's life flashed before her eyes when that happened. Like you, you, you kick Halle Berry really hard in the ribs on the set of a movie. Like your heart has to stop, right? Uh, that and your career. <laughs> um, to Hallie's credit, I mean, she's been. She has used that to kind of promote the movie, and she's laughed about it. She's, you know, been a good sport. She showed up to Valentina's fights. Uh, they uh, Apparently, they're, you know, at least somewhat friendly now. But I want to see Ortega back. I think the Korean Zombie's a good matchup. Uh, it's a very relevant fight for both guys. Here's my big gripe about this fight. The date. This is scheduled for, I believe, the 11th of October. If I'm incorrect on the date, I'm not incorrect about its competition. The same day, the same day, around the same time, I would imagine, that a truly, truly spectacular boxing fight will be going on between pound-for-pound king Vasily Lomachenko and the one guy at the moment, I think, who might be able to beat him in Teofimo Lopez Jr. Pat, why do they do this to me? You were very, very bad in a past life, and you know that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, look, for those of, for the fans here, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit of boxing here just because I can, because I have Pat, and because Lomachenko and Lopez is phenomenal. Hype me on that fight in, you know, fairly quick fashion. I mean, you don't have to hype me, but you know what I mean. I mean, you, what you've got is essentially the guy who's seen by many in Lomachenko as the best pound-for-pound pound fighter in the sport over the past few years since the depart, the active departure of Floyd Mayweather, um, and not without reason. The guy has forced elite-level fighters in multiple weight classes to quit rather than continue having to fight him. He has literally gone out and sought out the best talent over four separate weight divisions. He has gone up in weight strategically and with great success against the best that they have to offer. Guys like Jorge Linares, Nicholas Walters, even at a super fight with Guillermo Rigondeau in a fight where he really didn't impose his size on Rigondeau to win, which would have made it easy. He did it just through technical superiority against one of the best technicians in the sport at an unheard of level. And he's done this so often, so frequently, and so dominantly. There's been talk of anybody being able to challenge him effectively without him giving up a lot of weight. Well, Teofimo Lopez is a rising star in the lightweight division who is really just 
head turning every time he comes out. And his last fight on ESPN, he scored one of the most devastating one punch knockouts you'll ever see in a title fight when he just dropped Richard Comey like a ton of bricks with one good left hook. He's also yeah, he's also beaten guys like Diego Magdaleno, who was a fixture on TV and really did so in just one sided fashion. He's also a big lightweight and the one knock against Lomachenko as a lightweight is that this is the first division where he hasn't really carried his power up effectively. And Lopez is a big puncher. I think in 15 victories, he's either got 12 or 13 knockouts, and they're not knockouts over stiffs. He's knocked out the best guys he's fought. So with that, with his energy level, with his just reckless abandon in certain instances that often frustrates a good technician because they don't understand how a guy can be coming at them like this, this is the best possible fight you can make at 135 pounds. This is the best possible kind of fight you can make in boxing. Two great fighters who are both world champions at their best colliding at the right time. And it's free on ESPN. Yeah, it's going to be free on ESPN. And for the record, if you want to know what kind of fighter Loma is as a person, he took a fairly significant pay cut to make sure this fight happened. So good. And there's not a lot of people who would do that, you know, to take this fight, the toughest fight you can take for a pay cut. Uh, I applaud the, I don't know the Ukrainian word for balls on Lomachenko, but I would use it if I did. Uh, I, I'm really looking forward to that fight. If you can't tell, I would so much rather watch Lomachenko and Lopez, but I will bite that one for the team. And, and do my duty to cover Ortega versus the Korean zombie and just weep quietly. Never know. It could always end before we get to the actual uh, main event, and you might get to see both. I I profoundly hope so. But given how late the UFC schedules their stuff, I doubt it. <laughs> um, all right. Last bit of news I think that I wanted to touch on before we get to check Twitter and make sure nothing crazy has happened. Um, bit of surprising news coming out of this. Uh, Paige Van Zant after after her UFC contract expired, announced her next destination, and it's not Bellator. It's not the PFL. It's not a... WWE contract. She's going to bare-knuckle fighting championships. I... uh, Pat, I suppose this is the better question to ask about this. If Bare Knuckle continues burning money like this, and and let me say this, because I say that because they paid Pauly Mol- like Pauly Malignaggi was getting a lot of money for his fight with Artem Lobov, where he was screwed by the judges, for the record. If they had screwed Pauly on the money, we would have heard about it, right? Pauly's not going to keep that quiet. No, Paulie doesn't keep anything quiet, so that that would have been something that came up. So apparently, Paulie got paid. Paige Van Zant was—I know she was given offers by Bellator and other parties. If Bare Knuckle is throwing away the kind of money to entice someone like Paige to go from to go into the worst possible scenario for her, how much longer are they going to be around? Because I, who are they? Who are they milking for this money? Because really, you know, here's the thing with this whole situation, though. 
I don't even know that it was necessarily the money that brought Paige over there because she released a statement saying, I feel like I still have this stigma in MMA that I'm just a pretty face. And what a way to prove to people that's not the way I see myself at all. This is a sport where people probably have the highest rate of getting cut open and having long-term scars is definitely something that I'm not even worried about for me. Well, that sounds like a – that is a profoundly stupid thing to say. It's I mean, not look, I, right. I appreciate not being worried about your physical appearance and not wanting to be defined by it. I really do. Like that, that's admirable. A lot of shallow people who never get that depth of character. There's also a bit of, like, reality, though. <laughs> yeah, that's the other part of it. And, I mean, she is still young. She's, go- if you get a really bad scar, that's going to, I, I mean, after her stint on Dancing with the Stars, like, wasn't she approached about doing other stuff? She was a huge hit from Dancing with the Stars. That's when WWE drew interest, and they tried to negotiate something to bring her in. Um, She was one of the featured UFC athletes through a lot of sponsorship deals prior to the official Reebok solo deal where she was doing photo shoots with various companies. She was basically to the media on the same level at a certain point as Ronda was um, in terms of being a crossover star. Um, really more so through Dancing with the Stars exposure. But again, when they found out, oh, she's a cage fighter, but look at her. She's so gorgeous and, you know, she's nice and bubbly and, oh, my gosh, this is a star. And then the bell rang. And then she had her corner sent her out to fight with injuries that only exacerbated them. And they, I, oh, God, like she's, she's not got the worst. She's got the worst team in mixed martial arts, period, behind her. They they do yeah. not give a they do not give a shit about her. I mean, look, literally, I would, the only thing I would say to the counter is Edmund Tarverdian still has fighters, but if I'm comparing them to Edmund, then yeah, point made. Yeah, but but again, just to, and not to drift too far from the point we're talking about, where how is Bare Knuckle pulling this off? Why would she sign with Bare Knuckle? Uh, you know, again, you're talking about a corner that sent her out to fight, knowing knowingly. That she had a broken arm in a fight that did not have any significance in her uh, future at that point. So they decided to risk her long-term health in a fight with a broken arm, which how do you expect her to win a fight with a broken arm? You know, and the reasoning being because one, they are not competent enough to show her anything else to do, or she would have been a much bigger star than what she is. Uh, two, they don't want her to sign with anyone else to properly teach her how to fight and become a bigger star because she's pretty much all they've got, uh, realistically, in terms of who's bringing in any money to that gym. Uh, and, you know, again, that's the caveat of what she's doing. And, she, and she's been, you know, told, oh, we're doing this and we're doing this by you and you're doing great. And she's had no reason not to believe that until now when – hey, you've lost a bunch of fights, some repeatedly because of your arm and getting caught in the arm bars and having it broken. Uh, Maybe this isn't the best path. So instead of the realistic decision of I'm going to reevaluate my career, I'm going to take a step away from the highest level of competition, and I'm going to go to a different gym and rebuild myself and start from scratch and build better habits and better techniques and 
fight against the lower level of opposition in a Bellator or an LFA or an RFA or PFL, whatever. Yeah, Bellator is built for people like Paige to rehabilitate themselves in. Like that, yeah, that's or, what they that is what they do. Bellator she chose even if she chose to be a big fish in a little pond, she could do that successfully with the right team behind her there. True. And, and again, she has this kind of admirable blind stupid belief in herself in that she feels not only is signing up to fight bare knuckle a good move for her she feels it's the right move for her hence why she's doing it and this is a girl who and i don't say girl demeaningly like don't come on don't do that like she she's a she's a woman who uh is not particularly good at striking. And the strikes that she does throw well are kicks, which she can't throw in bare knuckle because yeah, it's she, just boxing. She's not a puncher. She has bad footwork. She does not utilize head movement. Well, to this be is, fair, those, those particular traits, as far as bare knuckle goes, nobody has good footwork or head movement. Right, but that's kind of illustrating my point, that these are the kind of people who she's getting thrown in with, and you've got a history of injuries to an appendage. This is not the way to do things. This is a bad move, and I'm really genuinely worried that her star is going to burn out before it ever gets to shine. And unless she only signed like a two fight or three fight deal in bare knuckle and they give her the softest opponents possible, this is not good. It's not good for Paige. It's not good for bare knuckle because, uh, you know, unless they really plan on throwing a pay-per-view based around her appearance and cashing out on it, it's not good for them long term if they have to continually pay her and she keeps getting beaten up, especially if she gets beaten up to the point where her looks start to fade. Because let's be honest. Her, her drawing ability is based on the fact that she is a stunningly beautiful girl. She, I, I make no bones about it. There are some beautiful women fighting in MMA. I think it's unequivocal that if you polled 100 men who the most beautiful MMA fighter in you know the world is, she would probably be number one with a bullet. There, there's some beautiful girls out there, Michelle Waterston, you know, a, a lot of women out there. But Paige another, probably, actually another person in. Uh... Not to be overly lascivious, but if we're going to – but, again, the notion that there are only unattractive women fighting is a profoundly misguided one. Um, Valerie Lareda in Bellator. Valerie Lareda, uh, who looks like a fitness model. You know, Paige's right. last opponent, Amanda Rebus. They're, these are beautiful yeah. girls. But, uh, you know, she's going to be the probably the number one who everybody picks with, you know, just public awareness of her. And that's going to fade away if she continually takes bare-knuckle punches to her face – which is her moneymaker. And I'm not saying that to be chauvinistic. I'm not saying that to be demeaning, but she's not a good fighter. And you can't say she draws based on her fighting ability because that's not true. She draws largely based on her aesthetic appeal, partly based on her personality. That's what it is. And that's going to take a lot of damage, literally and figuratively, in the bare-knuckle fighting world. Yeah, I I do not necessarily – I don't understand all of this. Unless I take what she says at face value and fighters being the tremendous liars that they are, I, I'm always hesitant to do so. 
I look at a bare minimum. If she's getting paid, I, at least good for her in that respect. But this is not moving into an arena even where she had demonstrated success in MMA. She, there are some people in MMA who, you know, if they, okay, I'm done here. I'm sick of, I'm sick of fighting. I'm sick of having to deal with the groundwork. I'm going to go into you know, straight kickboxing. There's a handful of MMA fighters who, okay, I don't want to deal with the kicks or the clinches or the wrestling. So I am going to go try boxing. Most MMA fighters, I I always laugh when people kind of mention, you know, there's certain guys who, you know, they should just go to boxing and make a lot of money. If they could box at that level, that's what they'd be doing, straight wow. up. I mean, there's a few head cases that maybe not so much. I mean, like, okay, maybe Nick Diaz just is enough of a head case that he's like, nah, I'm going to stay here. But you know, what Nick does doesn't work in boxing, because boxers know how to deal with it. I mean, of all the guys in, you know, in MMA who's like, you know, maybe they could go to boxing and maybe make a go of it. It's really hard to say. I mean, maybe at one point Junior could have done something at heavyweight. Big maybe, but heavyweight in boxing is about as useless as heavyweight in MMA, so probably. Um <laughs> You know, maybe Jorge Masvidal. Masvidal's got good hands, and if he really kind of shifted around his mentality to be boxing instead of MMA, he could do something. But yeah, it's it's very few and far between. Majority of guys are going to be heavyweights just based on how hard they naturally hit, and that makes them competitive on some level against anybody. But it, it's really few and far between the way those things translate. Yeah, I mean, we all saw what happened to Connor when he shifted. Floyd Mayweather got to fight in a style completely different from how he usually fights and beat him easily. I mean, I know there's a lot of idiots out there, a lot of the cult of Connor that, yeah, he won a couple of rounds, but he Floyd gave him those. And Floyd fought, you know, when Connor said after the fight, I made him fight like a Mexican. That's true. Floyd used that style, which he never used before or since. Floyd didn't train for that fight. Listen to anybody who has done reporting on that or anybody from his camp who talks about how hard he trained for that fight. He trained with air quotes. Mm -hmm. And he beat Connor easily. The, the difference there is, again, it's pretty significant. And it, it, that skill transfer is very rarely one-to-one. It's rare you get guys like Overeem, who can go from kickboxing, who can go, or, you know, however he kind of, he blended the two together for a long time. That's rare. You really kind of have to go all in on one or the other. And even Overeem at different points was, okay, I'm going to commit these years of my life to winning the K1 Grand Prix. And he did. And then he kind of left that go and moved back to MMA. You can't really blend them like that. So I, I don't know what how this is going to go for Paige. I imagine badly because, again, she's not much of a boxer. And she's not really – unless she goes to a straight boxing gym to prepare for this, and I doubt she will, because any good – any boxing trainer worth their salt is going to watch how she fights and how she moves and go, okay, when are you fighting next? Let's push that back about eight months. And let's re- okay. This is how you jab. Let's really kind of rebuild from the ground up here. Uh, I don't know. 
Uh, it's an odd move. It's a really odd move. At a bare minimum, like I said, I hope she gets paid. Because I hope everybody gets paid and most fighters are catastrophically undercompensated. 99% of them. Uh, you know, again, Paige made some unfortunate waves when she said I made more, I make more on Instagram than I do fighting in the UFC. I believe it. Well, uh, sponsorship levels, come on, no, no reason not to. Yeah, um, I, I have no problem believing that, which is very, very sad. I mean, let me let me put it this way. I, I'll rephrase. Not not only do I believe she made more money than. She made more money on Instagram than she did fighting. I believe she made more money on Instagram than 90% of the UFC roster does fighting. That's probably true. Uh, all right. Let's check Twitter, see if anything crazy is broken. It's 2020. That can happen. Um, no, I think... No, I don't think anything crazy is broken since we've been recording here. So let's go ahead and get into plugs then. Pat, uh, you and Mark have been doing a series of podcasts. How's that been going? Shockingly well. Um, now, we've gotten some really good feedback. Uh, so uh, if you're listening here, you probably have listened or in the past or maybe do listen to a lot of the shows that Rob does over on our our. Uh, you know, our other network, the Radulich and Broadcasting Network, which is where, you know, Rob and I started together and started working on on this MMA podcast years ago together. Um, basically, what we had uh, is uh, a lot of talk based on the current climate of heavyweight boxing and where things were and where they'd been. And we started kind of just doing a retrospective of the heavyweight championship history. And we've gone through basically a lot of eras we started with our first episode based around Jack Johnson, just based on the availability of film. And we've gone through uh, up into right now, our, our most recent episode is about the reign of Larry Holmes, which comprised uh, 1978 to 1985. And what we're going to do in our next episode is look at a lot of the lineage of the alphabet titles breaking up and no longer having a unified heavyweight champion for a period of time. And the kind of ne'er-do-wells who held those belts and the circumstances around them. And ultimately what leads to their reunification in our episode after that, which is in a timely manner, going to be based around Mike Tyson, who just happens to have been in the news lately and is going to be in action in November. So our September podcast will focus largely around the forgotten sons of the heavyweight division who held these alphabet belts. and. In October, as a build to November's showdown with Roy Jones Jr., uh, we'll be doing an episode based around Iron Mike Tyson and his reign as heavyweight champion of the world. But you can listen to us on the Rattlich and Broadcasting Network outlet from W2M. Uh, you can hear us on various formats. Uh, you can find it on Twitter at Mark Rattlich LCSW, uh, on Mark's Facebook page, on my Facebook page. It's widely available. Uh, please listen and enjoy. Uh, I've been enjoying those tremendously. I really like the one on Larry Holmes because Holmes is a guy that is sadly a forgotten great. The man's one of the best heavyweights of all time, and nobody remembers him because his era is sandwiched between two more popular eras. And in places, he went out of his way to make himself a villain. 
And then that, which was exacerbated by the media outlets wanting to make him a villain because they didn't like him. I don't know. Um, uh, if you've never seen it, just kind of loosely related to Larry Holmes, there is a 30 for 30, one of the ESPN documentaries on the fight between Muhammad Ali and Larry Holmes. And if that, if that, uh, doesn't give you a bit of insight into why Larry Holmes is kind of as bitter as he is. Uh, I don't know what else could, because I don't blame that man one iota for how he feels. But I, I've been enjoying those, so I do recommend them to anyone who's potentially listening and curious. They, they've been going through the heavyweight title because Mark was confused about what the lineal champion was. Yeah, a lot, a lot of that stems from why are they calling Tyson Fury the lineal heavyweight champion what does that even mean and this has kind of been i almost feel like we're doing a mr peabody and sherman in certain respects based on the heavyweight championship uh and yeah it's it's been a lot of fun to listen to uh because you guys have given a lot of appropriate airtime to a bunch of people who don't get it outside of like the real hardcore boxing circles i mean i've uh you know, the guys in particular, someone like, you know, Ezra Charles or Jersey Joe Walcott. I sadly think that, you know, if you want an MMA comparison out there, um, you know, Rafael Dos Anjos is probably going to wind up being the Ezra Charles of lightweight. A An all-time great technician, a guy everyone studies, and a guy that anytime you bring him up, people who know about him go, oh, yeah, genuinely great fighter. But no one's going to remember him if, some, if someone else doesn't bring him up. So I've, I've appreciated a lot of the work you guys have been doing there. As for myself, you can find my coverage in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania. You can find my reviews of Major League Wrestling re-airing their underground series on YouTube because they are desperate for content and apparently nearly going out of business. So you can watch me go through, boy, it's so 90s. Um... Their intro song is Power Man 5000's um, seminal classic. Uh, what the heck is it called? I forget the title. <laughs> you, you, I guarantee you'd know it if you heard it. Uh, not when worlds collide, is it? Yes, that is it. Thank you. Oh, boy, really? Oh, God. And the extreme horsemen have found it. Like, this couldn't be a more dated product if they didn't, like, all they need is Smash Mouth, and this would be the most dated thing you could possibly have. But I've been going through that. There's some hidden gems in there on occasion. Uh, there was a match between Christopher Daniels and Vampiro when Daniels was young and not wearing a cover-up, and Vampiro was juiced to the gills. I miss and, Vampiro. He had a documentary that's out now. i got to see that. Uh at this point in time, he's actually doing kind of an MMA shoot fighter gimmick. Yeah. Uh, so he is appropriately juiced for an early 2000s MMA fighter. <laughs> so y- you find a, a li- little bits here and there. There's a three-way fight, a three-way match between Christopher Daniels, Super Crazy, and Amazing Red when he's going by Fuego Guerrero. But there's a lot of crap. <laughs> so you can Listen, find my. I, I think it's worth sitting through. The 20-minute high spot fest that now is considered great wrestling, but then was considered, why the hell do they keep doing this? If you're going to get to some stuff with Satoshi Kojima um, as MLW champion, Teo Kia is there in MLW a bunch of times. There's good stuff, and I enjoy the reviews you do. 
I'm like, you kind of like, I'll kind of see what Rob's reviewing and based kind of more on his recommendation of the matches is when I'll tune in. Cause a lot of guys in that talent pool, some days they show up and some days they don't. And a lot of them are, it's a weird mix of like younger guys who are still figuring out who they are. And some older guys who are just disenfranchised with the upper tier professional wrestling so, you know, you got Jerry Lynn doing his ECW revival gimmick after uh, he was booted from WWE for being Jerry Lynn. Uh, Mike Awesome has recently kind of come back into the picture. So you can fi- you can find some good stuff, but uh, it's not hard to see where the excesses of contemporary wrestling come from. If you watch stuff like this and know this is what a lot of people were watching and going, this is great. So, yeah, you can find me there. Um, I don't think there's a movie review this week, but Mark and I got together a couple of weeks ago for some television reviews. We have a movie review. We do have some movie reviews coming up, so be on the lookout for that over on the Rattletch and Broadcasting subsection of the W2M network. And we'll be back here next week to review Pedro Munoz and uh, Frankie Edgar, and we'll have a preview of UFC on ESPN plus 33. And speaking of just dead cards. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry. I mentioned this a little bit last. Uh, I think the Rodriguez uh, Zabit fight was supposed to headline both that previous card. It was attached to that. It got moved to that one, uh, the 29th. And then that fell out. So that, that fight card's main event is now a three-round fight between Anthony Smith and Alexander Rakich. Couldn't even get, uh, like, yeah. look, Neil Magny and Robbie Lawler are going to fight on that card, and I have a modicum of hope for that, but, um, and if you're really noodly about some of these things, Ryan Hall versus uh, Ricardo Lamas, just to see Ryan Hall fight again is always kind of fun, but it's not a great card. It, it, um, it just isn't really. Oh, God, Saperbeck Safarov is fighting on that card. He's fighting Julian Marquez. Wow, he's still there, too. Oof. He's been out for a long time. He's got a podcast now, apparently. Um. Oh, wait, I know, I know this. I know this. Hang on. Who was that porn star everyone thought John Cena slept with? Uh, Tammy Sitch. No, 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 no. The legit porn star. Oh, uh, I forget her name. Wasn't it Kendra something or other? Kendra Lust? Yeah, that's it. That's the one? Yeah, he, uh, though, he, she has a podcast with Julian Marquez, apparently. What? Yeah, she's a big MMA fan. All good. We got another Jenna Jameson in play. Awesome. Uh, she, ac- she actually trains. Uh, she does a lot of work with, um... Who's that? Who's that Bellator guy that's been there forever? Juan Archuleta. Yeah, she trains out of his gym. This is so bizarre. Yeah, but hey, it's look. Didn't you see this? Like the uh, that that uh, like Cam side is getting back. It has an MMA is back in the MMA promotion business. Well, like Cam Soda, I think. Oh, good lord. They're like uh, co. There's another promotion they're like going in on with. 
I don't know what to say, guys. MMA is combat sports is a dirty, dirty business. So yeah, that's all coming up. All right. Um, you can find me back here to uh, review preview next week, and hopefully something interesting will crop up on one of those cards. Uh, but more interesting than Kendra Luss being married to a police officer in Michigan. Uh, did not know that. Okay. You could say probably because it probably is more interesting. Well, you know, police officer in Michigan these days. Uh, that that might be more interesting than the average UFC event. Might see more action. Oh, my jokes at the expense of the at the expense of the city of Detroit. Oh, that's the thing I did last week. Okay, I remember now. Detroit brought it back. Um. Mark Radlitz decided it would be a good idea to show me the Kentucky Fried Movie, which is a series of shorts from the 1970s, and then record my reaction to it live. So not live as the movie's playing, but as soon as it's done, we record. And yeah, they make jokes at the expense of Detroit in the 1970s, and they're still relevant today. Good so you Lord, can... that's, that's just not a good sign. <laughs> Yeah, there, there's a bit in there where their parody of uh, Enter the Dragon with a guy who does a great Bruce Lee impression, by the way, uh, Evan Kim. Better than no- uh, better than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? It's more deliberately send-up-y than, like, what that was. But, so, on par but different, you know, deli- more deliberately comedic. Whereas uh, the one, whereas the one in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was kind of the unintentional comedy. Um, yeah, if you can find that short, and if you appreciate mocking kung fu movies, it's pretty good. It's long; it's like 30 minutes, but it's good. Yeah, I'll just watch Superstar Billy Graham match from uh, 1982 or three. Fair enough. So you can find my reaction to that. Mark and I did that. It was kind of fun. Um, and it says a lot about us that I think the things we laughed the hardest at were the uh, frying of a cat in pure Nesson oil and what is rather famously the N-word scene from that movie. Have you, se- have you seen that scene, Pat? It's been so many years since I've seen the Kentucky Fried movie. And, like, I kind of wasn't a huge fan of it. So I'm sure I did see it, just didn't leave a mark on me. I'd look it up again. It's on YouTube. You can just look up the Kentucky Fried movie N-word scene. It, I just about died laughing. It, I may it, have to. It works because – I mean it works better if you don't know it's coming. But, it, yeah, it's really short. And I don't normally uh, – I'm not one of those guys who finds a lot of you know racial humor funny. But, again, the setup for this is everything more than the payoff. But it's – you couldn't make that scene today, which is kind of sad, I think. Yeah, well, there's a lot of things about today that's sad. Also true. All right, so you can find me doing all that kind of stuff. I'll be back here next week. I hope you all will as well. Until next time, on behalf of Pat Mullen, I'm Robert Winfrey reminding you all to stay safe out there. And please continue to be well, be safe, and behave.